everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network, New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers uh, from the Study Abroad uh, School for International Training Study Abroad Program in Amsterdam, and the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Melissa Sanchez, who is um, who is happily a professor of English and Comparative Literature at, uh, in at the University of Pennsylvania. And today we're going to talk about her new book, Queer Faith, Reading Promiscuity and Race in the Secular Love Tradition. Um, I am so excited about this book. I was so excited when I saw the title and the idea that I would get to read it and talk to you. It was just fantastic. So I'm really, uh, really ready to get into it. But just let's start with this. Just like, you know, uh, tell me about tell me a bit about yourself. OK, so I as as you no, I teach um, English and comparative literature, and I'm also a core faculty member in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies program at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, over the years, I've studied various aspects of gender and sexuality in 16th century literature and culture. Um, and all of my all of my writing tends to focus on the question of how literary and cultural and political writing, and in the case of this most recent book, religious writing of the past, um, can can reveal to us alternate ways of thinking about our world now. Um, so, So it's not to argue that the past was better or that we should return to it by, I mean, certainly previous eras included all of their own polluties and horrors. But looking at past cultures, I've always argued, does allow us to glimpse some paths that weren't taken and some futures that didn't come to be. And because literature in particular captures um, imaginative possibilities that aren't that aren't preserved in the factual archives of historical or legal or political documents, uh, literature ends up being a particularly rich site for preserving and discovering non-normative desires and perspectives. So, um, so, so my work over, over the years has focused on particularly poetry, uh, but, but also drama and prose uh, that, that, allows us to see just how bizarre the past was in its understanding of desire and gender and sexuality. Yeah. Uh, all right. Excellent. That is, that's, um, you've hit on a couple of very, a couple of very good points, right? The, the imaginative possibilities of literature um, reaching the, the, the wildest dreams sometimes of, uh, of of your authors, it gives you a different perspective, definitely. Right, exactly. Because you, I mean, certainly one can also look at things like court cases or family letters or you know political parliamentary records, and this gives us a certain vision of the past. But that's a very public past. Um. And and imaginative literature because it is it, because it's dealing in 
fantasy and desire in things that aren't empirically real in a certain sense. Um, it also allows us to understand the path as it, it, it allows us to understand desire and fantasy as also part of the past. And in some ways, a more accurate record of what people were thinking and wanting in the past. Yeah, I, I mean, there's something about creating a purposeful fiction that allows for more honesty than, you know, the fiction I'm trained as an historian myself. And I've read, you know, a ton of Inquisition cases or criminal cases, and that's fiction as well. But it's this very carefully crafted fiction for a purpose. Um it, it, it takes you to a different place. And of course, oh, yes, sorry. So like, I mean, my first book um, thought was, was much more focused on state politics and, and the, the politics of, of um, monarchy in the 16th and 17th centuries. And one of the things that I was really interested in there is how all of this literature um, describes love relationships in this, in terms of political sovereignty, so that is king as the woman is to the people. But then they also imagined man and woman, and by analogy, king and people in this in these various sadomasochistic, voyeuristic relations. And and so my argument there was that looking at these fantasies of, you know of this kind of pleasure in objection actually gave us a really different view of what politics would have been experienced as during that than the official records of, you know, say royal proclamations and parliamentary speeches would allow us to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which leads us back to your other point, which is that the past is a very strange place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, I think, I think I mean, and as an as an as a historian, you obviously know this. I think that when when people who haven't spent a lot of time looking at the past think about the past, they imagine that it's just going to be this very conservative, stable, simple time. Yeah, um, it's us, but a little bit better, maybe. Right. Exactly. And and it's always just it's always much weirder. And much more complex. Um, when I when I teach some of this literature, um, you know, I teach. So one of the authors that I discuss in queer faith is John Donne, and he writes one poem where he's imagining the Christian. He, he's imagining the the Christian Church. He's personifying it as a woman, and the poem ends by him saying that. The, the church is most loyal to God when she's most open to, to all men. Um, and, and my students really do a double take. They're like, did he seriously say that, you know, the more promiscuous the church is, the, the more she's, she's loyal, you know, the more she's the loyal bride of Christ. And I say, yes. And what he's getting at is the weirdness of the Christian imagination right? Where everyone can enter the church as it were. And that's what makes the church valuable is, it, is that it's not exclusionary. 
so you have this, yeah. So, so with you know, Don is just. I, I, I mean, I could go into. I could give examples today, but but Don is just one example of how perfectly orthodox Christian positions become incredibly perverse once the metaphor, once you put any kind of pressure on the metaphor. No, yeah, that's that's fast. Oh, that's great. That's fascinating. Um, all right. So tell me how, uh, how did you come to write this book? How did, where did this come from? So, so this book, um, it, it, as it turned out, it ends up staging a dialogue between some conceptual systems that are usually considered incongruent, if not mutually antagonistic. Um, and, and those, those conceptual systems are queer theory, Christian theology, and Renaissance love lyrics. And the the book proposes that the frameworks offered by queer theory illuminate the resistance to um, modern idealizations of monogamous coupledom offered by, by both religious writing and by Petrarchan poetry. And but but at the same time, I I argue that as I've been saying um, about my work in general, I argue that the writing of the past and in particular, these famous love lyrics by writers like Shakespeare and Dunn um, constitute an overlooked archive that can expand and unsettle and refine a lot of the um, insights of modern queer theory. So I started this project Around around the same time, uh, right after I finished the the previous book on on politics that I had mentioned before, um, which was sometime around two thousand and nine, and at that time I actually didn't think that it was going to be about religion or theology at all. Um, when when the project began, I was really interested in how these love lyrics challenged what I saw as a strange convergence between conservative idealizations of women's sexual innocence and some feminist writing that also idealized women's sexual innocence. And I wanted to draw on queer theory as a way of, of thinking about representations of female promiscuity beyond feminist frameworks of misogyny and false consciousness. Um, so, so I'd originally expected that poetic representations of promiscuity would stand in stark opposition to Christian and especially Protestant writings on marriage. Um, and, and I was, I, it was with this hypothesis in mind that I started to write what ended up being chapter three, which focuses on Shakespeare's procreation sonnets and some lyrics by a contemporary poet of Shakespeare's, Edmund Spencer, on, on courtship and marriage. Um, but, but I started, in writing that chapter, I started reading a lot of the theology, a lot of theological takes on marriage by St. Paul, St. Augustine, uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. And the more closely I read this theological writing, um, the more I found that not only was the early Protestant take on marriage 
strikingly continuous with Augustinian views, but also that Luther and Calvin argued that marriage was superior to celibacy, not because it marriage somehow magically made sex innocent, um, but because marriage constituted this public acknowledgement of shameful desires that couldn't be suppressed. Um, so, and, and this, this pessimistic view of marriage as a humbling confession of impurity, for me, resonated really strikingly with um, queer challenges to marriage, as uh, or queer challenges to it to the idea that marriage is is a sign of innocent and normal sexuality. Um, so, so the queer theorist Michael Warner in um, in a, a 1999 book, The Trouble with Normal, um, writes that um, here, here's a quotation from him that that I think resonates very closely with um, some of the things that Luther and Calvin say. Uh, here's Werner, perhaps because sex is an occasion for losing control, for merging one's consciousness with the lower orders of animal desire and sensation, for raw confrontations of power and demand, it fills people with aversion and shame. And so consequently, if sex is a kind of indignity, then we're all in it together. And so this notion that sex is valuable not because it's innocent, but because it's not innocent, because it really is this moment, it, because, because giving it, the, the experience of desire and sex and orgasm actually break down our pretenses to rationality and human exceptionality. Um, that actually resonates strikingly with, um, for instance, Luther characterizes marriage. This is a literal quote. He calls it a hospital for incurables. Um, that is, he so so that is he he says you know marriage. It's it's you know best to remain celibate if you can because that means you're not subject to all of these fleshly pools of desire. But, but if you can't, if you, but, but if you're incurable, then marriage allows you this outlet for your desire. And, and to me, that's exactly the opposite of a modern Christian right view of marriage. As the, you know, with, as some, somehow more innocent sexually yeah. than... There's a perfection there with marriage now. It, like it, marriage is supposed to tame in these passions, and it like it turns our our humanity and like our like kind of the basic honesty of of the of the state of humanity into something else. Yeah, exactly. And this idea, I mean, it's what you know. Another queer theorist, Leo Bersani, um, writes to challenge what he calls the romantic reinvention of sexuality that is the idea that love somehow makes sex different mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and you know one of the things even though i think you know i i don't think that the protestant theologians i'm reading would actually endorse anything like 
queer politics. Yeah, or like yeah, Leo Bersani probably wouldn't get on with Luther, would he? No, exactly. <laughs> probably not be a happy conversation. <laughs> but 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 once you but but if you focus on the a key argument of the book is that if we focus on the form of of Christian thought, as opposed to the content or the belief that's attached to it, we can actually see it as a really fascinating and complex theorization of the opacity of desire and subjectivity. Mm, that's, all right, so let's restate that. Like, what's what's our argument here? So what are you like? What- well, well, okay. So, so for you know, if if we move. Oh, you know, if we if we move back from the specific topic of marriage to the more to the broader topic of faith that the book is about. The argument is that in the tradition of theological writing that I analyze, which follows from St. Paul's epistles, um, faith is something that's always impossible to achieve. In fact, the very thing that makes faith valuable for Paul is that the the individual believer recognizes themselves to be faithless um, and recognizes that the very demand for faith is impossible to fulfill. And in the, the impossibility of that demand for faith, there's all sorts of potential for resentment and anger and frustration and distraction. This model of faith works its way into secular writing um, through the love poetry of a uh, Renaissance poet named, named Francesco Petrarch. And Petrarch's writing Essentially, essentially, is is one of the first places that compares love to religion, and this is a metaphor that we still continue to see everywhere. I mean, you can think of songs like Madonna's "Like a Prayer" or George Michael's "You've Got to Have Faith." So, so the argument is that once you start looking at the actual theological accounts of faith you can see that what they're that that this metaphor actually points to the impossibility of monogamy the impossibility of self-knowledge as opposed to a anything like a happily ever after constant devotion does that make sense yeah yeah I can explain more. I can give an example of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes sense, but I think I would also, and I would, and I'm certain our listeners would benefit from another example. Okay. So let me let me think of another good example. Yeah, no worries. Okay. Take it, like, take, like I said, take a minute, think it through. We've got to... Yeah, let me, let me try to... I'm, I've just... Picked up a copy of the book. And I got. Um, I just spent a little minute there thinking about Petrarch and George Michael. And right. And like, I like that meeting too, almost as much as Luther and Leo Bersani, like hanging out together 
Like in, in some like a Milan Kundera novel, like it, it's really cool. <laughs> okay, so so I'll read. Um, I'll read a little bit from one of Shakespeare's songs. Okay, brilliant. I think gives um, gives an example. So, so this is Shakespeare's sonnet fifty eight, um, and it's all all it's short. It's only fourteen lines. So I'll go ahead and I'll say a couple of words about it. And and here um, Shakespeare. This this is one of the poems that's addressed to a figure that is described as a fair young man in Shakespeare's sonnet. Um, so, so Shakespeare writes that God forbid that made me first your slave, I should in thought control your times of pleasure, or at your hand the account of hours to crave, being your vassal bound to stay your leisure. Oh, let me suffer being at your beck, the imprisoned absence of your liberty, and patience tame to sufferance bite each check without accusing you of injury. Beware you list, your charter is so strong that you yourself may privilege your time to what you will. To you it doth belong, yourself to pardon of self-doing crime. I am to wait, though waiting be so hell, not blame your pleasure, be it ill or well. So this poem dramatizes something that I think is familiar to almost anyone who's ever, you know, waited in a restaurant for someone or waited for the phone to ring. And, and that's the feeling of waiting as a feeling of absolute helplessness and, and a feeling of, res- and, and the feelings of anxiety and resentment that accompany waiting. For the, the way that I argue a poem like this connects to the, the longer tradition of um, Christian understandings of faith is, so throughout the sonnets, Shakespeare repeatedly uses a religious vocabulary to describe his devotion to this young man. Um, and that, but, and, and that devotion, if it's absolutely true selfless devotion, should not demand anything in return. But the very effort to, to behave, as Shakespeare puts it in this poem, as a slave, as someone who simply does the master's bidding, and this is, for St. Paul, the ideal position of the Christian believer in relation to God as well, the effort to, to um, hold that pose of absolute devotion and humility that demands nothing but to continue loving and serving. As the poem I just read, um, I think, dramatizes, ends up having exactly the opposite effect insofar as the love object also becomes an object of resentment and anger. So, for instance, in this poem, um, that final couplet, I am to wait, though waiting be so hell, not blame your pleasure, be it ill or well. 
this attempt to resign himself to waiting as his natural role and to not being angry about waiting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, but do, you, yeah, do you see yeah. what I, where I'm It also, it, it suggests that, um, it suggests the impossibility of that kind of absolute devotion. Right. It suggests that devotion is also always a demand for some kind of reciprocation. Oh, and that, that makes a very nice, uh, it's a good parallel to the idea that you can never be, you can never be adequately faithful. You can never be adequately devoted. Right, exactly. And, and this sense, you know, and, and so, so getting to be, what this poetry allows us to see exactly is that the fantasy of a kind of constant and unchanging and selfless love is just that. It's a fantasy. A delightful, appealing, promising fantasy. Right. Right. But one that, you know, one that we are never able to live up to. Right. Hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Excellent. I, um, I think I've got that. All right. And so would you say this is like what you lay out in the introduction, right? This argument here. Okay. So um, like, I would like to kind of walk through the, the rest of the book. And so you can tell me about chapter one, the queerness of Christian faith. So, so that's the chapter where I focus on some of the early theology, um, especially um, Paul's letter, Paul, um, Paul's letters from the New Testament and Saint Augustine's writings. Um, and one of the things that that I find really fascinating about both Paul and Augustine is again this sense. That this sense, so so for Paul, um, the thing that distinguishes Christianity from Judaism is the focus not on merit, but on faith. Right, the idea that one never deserves God's grace, and that grace is this gift that that we can never um, that we can never demand or expect because we don't merit it. Um, so that all that all that the Christian believer can do for Paul is attempt to believe in the possibility of grace and believe in the goodness that makes that grace possible. But the the catch is that such belief itself always has to falter in order to be faith. Because if one were perfectly faithful, then one would merit salvation and not need God at all. So there's this odd structure of failure built into the very concept of faith, as Paul articulates it. St. Augustine is a very close reader of Paul. And his confessions, which are written around the fourth century um, BCE, um, 
Augustine's confessions are all about his own inability to, and and this is going to sound like I'm stuttering, but it's actually (laughs) what I mean to say. Augustine's confessions are all about his inability to want what he wants to Mm -hmm. want. So a famous prayer from the confessions that um, that Augustine lays out is, God give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> but yeah, right. And right. So this idea that he he wants to want to be chaste, but he also does not want to be chaste, right? So you have this divided self dramatized there. And it's in it's in that that space between the self that he wants to be and the self that he is. That you that um, that you get the frustration of of faith as a concept, right? He's not able, even when even after he claims to have had his conversion in the garden in Book Eight of the Confessions. So you know he's still after that point begging for God to give him perfect faith because he just can't sustain it. But the very fact that he can't sustain it is also the thing that can, that allows him to continue in his devotion to God. Because again, if he if he could sustain perfect faith, then it would be his work and not God's Certainly. grace. And and then he doesn't need salvation, right? Then the whole the whole project exactly. is no. He's earned. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I trace that that strange dynamic, mm-hmm. um, and and I see it in and I see it in chapter one as the basis of um, Fran, Francesco Petrarch's uh, sonnet sequence, in which Petrarch dramatizes this you know thirty one year period in which he's in love with a woman who is almost certainly fictional named Laura, um, who he, he courts for 21 years until she dies. And then the, in his fiction, the, he's, writing for, he's writing love poems to her for another 10 years. Um, and, and in Petrarch's desire for Laura, on, Laura comes to take the comes to fill the role for Petrarch that God fills for mm. Augustine. Um, so, so Laura, so Petrarch's devotion to Laura is constantly faltering, and he's const- the the very thing that he loves her for, which is her chastity, is also the thing that means that he's never going to succeed in attracting. Her. So, yeah. So she becomes not only an object of desire and attraction, but also an object and, of and frustration. So then, the frustration that we see mirrored with Augustine, with Paul, in uh, Petrarch—that's the point. Is that the argument? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and the constant, you know, the 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 difficulty for Augustine is he's you know he's he's constantly dealing with the fact that. What that God is demanding of him something that is impossible. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the idea that as a human creature, he's been made to be faithless, but he's still expected to be faithful. And that's for him profoundly unjust. And Petrarch, by the same token, is seeing his love for Laura. You know, there's there's this constant sense that he's done everything for her and she still is not loving him in the way that he wants to be loved and not returning his desires. Hmm. So, so the feelings of love actually end up giving way to feelings of anger and hatred. And, and throughout the, po- the sequence, there are 366 poems in it. Throughout the sequence, there are a number of poems where he actually attacks Laura for not loving him in the way that he wants to be loved. Yeah, and, and the faithless woman... Uh-huh. But the faithless woman is the church is an interesting combination or or is God the faithless woman there? Sorry. Yeah. Well, so, so essentially God, Laura in for Petrarch is in the Mm -hmm. place of God. Petrarch is devoted to her in the way that he should be devoted to God. And so all of the resentments that accompany faith in its religious dimension are transferred onto love in its right. secular sense. Okay. In, then in chapter two, I look at how this shapes English literature and specifically Shakespeare's sonnets, um, where, where the speaker of Shakespeare's sonnets is in love with both a fair young man and a mistress who's described as black. And the the and in this chapter I think very specifically about the racialized dimensions of faith. Um insofar as for a number of um a number of Renaissance Protestant writers, Christianity becomes increasingly associated with the freedom and liberation of um, the Protestant church as against the enslavement and hypocrisy of especially um, Old Testament religions, um, but also uh, for Lutheran Calvin Catholics who associate, who are essentially seen as being of a different race than Protestants. Um, so, so I argue that in Shakespeare's sonnets, the black mistress, on the one hand, comes to comes to represent a failure of faith. Um, but on the other hand, she actually represents a much more um, ethical alternative to the to the demand for perfection that that Shakespeare initially projects onto both her and the young man. So in the poem that I read earlier, Sonnet um, Sonnet 58, the one where the poet complains that 
man has enslaved him and is making him wait, um, you, you get, again, an expression of the anger that is created by the demand for perfect devotion. In some of the later poems, to the mistress, um, Shakespeare's poetic speaker actually takes, on the one hand, he describes her as utterly promiscuous. She's sleeping with the young man. She's sleeping with untold numbers of other men. And she's sleeping with the speaker of the sonnets. Um, but this promiscuity by the end of the sequence actually becomes, actually provides a different kind of relational pattern that Shakespeare calls, um, that this is his phrase from, from Sonnet 42, lascivious grace. And that's the notion that grace in both its, um, in both its religious sense of God's offer of salvation to anyone, regardless of merit, and in Shakespeare's secularization of the mistress's willingness to share her body with anyone, regardless of merit. Lascivious grace actually becomes a more ethical approach to other people insofar as it doesn't demand individual. It, it's, it's, a, it's a stance of humility about the self that does not demand the kind of chastity and perfection that Shakespeare's Laura is a personification of. Okay. So, so then okay. chapter three turns to the question of marriage. And, it, and there, you know, I've, I've already talked a little bit about the chapter, which is kind of, even though it comes third in the book, it's, it's sort of where the, the book as a whole started. Um, it, it essentially argues that the, the Protestant Reformation is, even though the Protestant Reformation is conventionally understood as elevating um, marriage above the lifelong celibacy privileged by the Catholic Church, um, this, this view of the rise of what, as I think you probably know as a historian, this view of what um, historians and literary critics have often called the rise of companionate marriage overlooks uh, a key argument of reformers like Luther and Calvin, who saw marriage as superior to celibacy, not because it magically sanctifies um, shameful bodily desires, but because it publicly acknowledges them. Um, and, and I argue in this chapter that this view of marriage as, as a humbling confession of impurity um, actually runs exactly counter to the ideals assumed by the U.S. Supreme Court in Obergefell versus Hodges, which was, um, as, as you probably know, the 2015 case that um, legalized same-sex marriage in the U.S., um, and what I find fascinating about the, the um, opinions in Obergefell versus Hodges is that um, both the, even though the majority affirms the constitutional right to marriage equality, 
and the dissent, um, you know, insists that marriage is just between a man and a woman. Both sides agree that marriage is a unique expression of love and dignity. And they both claim that this view of marriage as, again, uniquely innocent and, and romantic um, runs, they, they justify it through these constant appeals to what they quote unquote, our Christian tradition. Um, but I, again, I, I argue that if you look at the actual, both the theological writing and some of the poetry from the Protestant Reformation, what you see instead is a Protestant certainty that nuptial sex shares the excess and indignity of fornication. Um, so, so in this chapter, I look at um, I, I look at a few different uh, poetic pieces. One um, one is the section of Shakespeare's sonnet sequence focused on. Um, on procreation, where Shakespeare tries essentially to imagine procreation without sex. And then when he does imagine sex, it becomes innately shameful, even though it's procreative. Um, And then I look at these poems that the 16th century poet Edmund Spencer wrote um, to the woman who would become his wife. The, the sequences are called the, the Amoretti and then the Epithalamian. And they docu- they kind of imaginatively document the marriage and courtship. And in, in these poems, Spencer, you, you see Spencer trying to imagine his desires as innocent, but the way that he does that is by writing to his bride-to-be as though she cannot possibly return his desires so that female chastity becomes the thing that keeps, um, that keeps conjugal sex from running to absolute excess, but with the result that in a lot of these poems, conjugal sex actually becomes hard to distinguish from kind of pornographic fantasy of rape, whereby the um, whereby the woman that that um, Spencer is courting does not want to have sex and has to be overcome by the in but but never can enjoy the sex. Um, so, so there's a way in which, as I argue in, in this chapter, the, the ideals of innocence that are attached to, um, you know, modern Christian discourses of family values, insofar as they place a burden on women who not want sex um, and to not want to um, to be the ones in control, they also um, they also generate these sadomasochistic fantasies of women being forced um, that that prevent 
<clears throat> again, that keep marital sex being, from being a site of uncontrolled appetite on both sides, as it were. Okay. Okay. Um, so then um, the, the fourth chapter then turns from marriage to divorce and adultery. And in, in this chapter, I argue that, that whereas in modern thought, um, secularism appears to be the only route in which we can challenge lifelong monogamous marriage, in the Renaissance, you actually have some very Christian writers, John Milton, Philip Sidney, and Mary Roth, who base their endorsement of divorce and adultery on um, the Pauline distinction between duty and love, letter and spirit. Um, so, so in emphasizing interiority, these writers, um, these writers kind of take privatization to its logical extreme and thereby provide grounds from removing intimacy from institutional regulation and reward altogether. Um, so in other words, they use the argue, they use the view, they use a Pauline model of sincerity that can't be boiled down to works in order to argue that, um, that true love is in fact potentially antithetical to marriage insofar as once, you know, once one is married, one is no longer necessarily following one's heart. Right, one married for reasons of property or respectability or custom, whereas adulterous love, insofar as there is no reward but the love itself, is the more sincere expression of true desire. And um, John Milton, who was a 17th century um, Puritan poet actually argues for divorce on the grounds that, uh, so, in, and I should add, um, England was one of the last, one of the last European countries to allow divorce. Until the 18th century, you couldn't get divorced in England without a um, proclamatory, uh, sorry, a parliamentary approval. So Milton is arguing against England's really strict divorce laws on the grounds that by forcing people to stay married to people that they don't love, um, England is actually, is actually um, causing hypocrisy and deceit that are antithetical to Christian charity. Yeah, so so you get this. So again, in in that chapter, what really fascinates me is from you you have these three very prominent Protestant writers arguing from scriptural grounds for 
divorce and for adultery and against compulsory marriage. Um, then the, the, the final chapter five, the final chapter um, focuses on John Donne's lyrics. And what one, one thing that distinguishes this chapter from the previous ones is that where all of the writers that um, I read in the first four chapters are unrequited lovers, they're the ones who are in love and who are being rejected in all sorts of ways. Um, in, in chapter five, I look at Dunn's writing, which is written from the point of view of the unfaithful lover, of the one who falls out of love or the one who, um, who is, who is um, treacherous. And I argue that what, what Dunn is doing here is thinking about the question of what I call erotic accountability. That is, what do we love those that, what do we owe to people who love us in the erotic sense? Um, and I, I argue that um, Dunn is in fact at his most religious when he defends um, promiscuous and impermanent and impure intimacies insofar as he's in arguing against, in, in arguing for um, the absolute promiscuity of love and what he, what he describes as a kind of indifference to particulars. He's actually taking, he's actually um, taking the Pauline insight that no one can claim to deserve grace to its logic, logical conclusion in the secular sense, right? So in, in a sense, so, so what he's essentially saying in a number of his poems is that to demand to demand absolute monogamy of anyone is also to, um, to claim one's own desert when in fact no one can under, no one can, no one can demand another's love as something that one deserves. It's always a gift. It's always a matter of charity. So we, we're seeing this idea about, I, I'm reading like, the the similar pure pure devotion can't really be reined in right it can't be bound it can't be understood and it's not ruled by any sort of uh earthly or human measure right and mm -hmm. it, it's boundless and it's honest yeah yeah and and it's not rational um so, so you know in the renaissance there's there's this um long tradition of equating Cupid with Christ. The idea there is that, and, and again, this goes at least as far back as, as Augustine, who always, who's constantly begging God, please make me love you, right? There's this sense that no one can decide to love anyone else, right? It's something to, to fall in love is something 
goes beyond any kind of and it's maddening, right? Love is maddening. It's it it it, it, it removes your reason. Exactly. So so you know the the ability to feel love for God is not something that we choose according to this Christian tradition. It's something mm-hmm. that God okay. gives us. And then by the same token, falling in love in, you know, in the secular sense, this is why mm-hmm. Cupid is like Christ, some thinkers. You know, Cupid's arrow hits you, according to that myth. And you don't decide, uh, okay, it makes sense to love this person, right? You love feels on the one hand, like something that just came out of nowhere. But on the other hand, it's someone can't put a gun to your head. And no, of course not. It's, it's unmanageable. It's unpredictable. It's, I mean, Eris is, Eris is just that. That's it. Eris is unpredictable. And so then, yeah. and, and, and really just also just beyond our understanding, um, humans can't possibly get love, but it seems like they can't possibly understand the reason of God either. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and in that way, you know, so, so again, for, for Dunn, one of the things that that's really critical is the the indistinguishability of human beings before God. Um, and he has one of his most famous poems is called The Flea. And in this poem, he imagines that a flea has bitten both himself and the woman that he's trying to get to go to bed with him. Um, and, and in this poem, the flea essentially takes the perspective of the God insofar as humans all look the same to an insect. Um, And he uses that conceit, this idea that the flea could bite anyone, it doesn't really matter, to argue against human pretensions to honor and innocence and desert. Um, and and he you know, and in that poem he just insists these are all fictions that we've made up in order to glorify sex, when in fact, you know, again, from from this much broader perspective, none of us is particularly special or unique. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um hmm. and and we're ordinary, we're common right like that's kind of the thing it feels that um neither love nor faith can be disciplined they're both exactly they transcend our understanding they transcend our our discipline and our control exactly and and so to imagine that some forms of love or relationality or sexual practice somehow make anyone better than anyone else is itself to is itself to take a perspective that um, mm-hmm. that creates these fictional hierarchies which in fact have no bearing yeah. in okay. yeah that's just that's just just chat that's just talking it doesn't reflect yeah okay 
God, that's fascinating. <laughs> this is a really exciting. Um, so, Tech, can you explain to me why you decided to title it Queer Faith? Um, so that's that's funny. It's, you know, the original title of the book was The Ethics of Promiscuity. Um, and it, and I was, you know, and, and that title was meant to convey a view that the kind of the kind of um, you know promis- the the view that a more promiscuous less self serious less self elevating approach to sex was actually more ethical than a demand to monogamy that that was that you know is a is a central argument of the book um, and and then it you know when I sent it to NYU Press and they sent it out to external readers for evaluation and suggestions for revision, the one thing that all three readers said was that um, the ethics of promiscuity didn't quite capture what the book was about. Um, so I ended up you know with with Eric Zinner, the editor of NYU Press. I think we went through about a zillion <laughs> titles. Coming back to Queer Faith as, as the title that really captured um, the sense that the book isn't just about promiscuity, um, at, you know, which is, is a somewhat more narrow topic but about the queerness mm-hmm. of the very concept of faith. Yeah, the, the unmanageable, the, the, the rule-breaking, yeah. the, like, the liminal status, right? This. Yeah, exactly. And, and the sense that, again, to be, that, that, that faith is always premised mm-hmm. on betrayal and faithlessness, um, whether, whether in, its, in its spiritual or its secular terms. So, um, so, so, so getting a sense of, of the, the queerness and the perversity mm-hmm. of faith as a concept captured more what the full book was about. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, well, I think it a good choice. It's a fantastic title. Yeah, I think it worked. In, in the end, it works much yeah, better. Yeah, absolutely. So. All right. I have taken up a bunch of your time. So if you would just like to conclude for me, tell me how you end this. You have a coda, which is fantastic. Oh, so yeah. So so the coda actually thinks about um, the about academic um, periodization and the ways in which um, Queer theory has tended to be very much focused on modernity, which I argue um, creates a, well, or, or replicates a view that the modern West is the site of liberation and progress and freedom and democracy. Um, and I, in, in the coda, I actually argue that that view of modernity as, um, you know, this, this progress narrative of Western modernity 
itself replicates precisely the teleology and linear thinking that queer theory in general is at pains to contest. Um, and so I, I urge scholars to instead think about how, um, how expanding the authorized genealogies of queer theory beyond modernity will give us a much broader, will, will allow us to challenge more broadly um, some of the, some of the, um, heteronormative and conservative understandings of the past. So that is, instead of seeing the past as a better and simpler time, or instead of seeing the present as inevitable, we can understand the past as this site of future, of possible futures that never came to be, um, and as a site of alternative modes of being in hmm. the world. The, a nice addition uh, to, the, to, the, to queer theory, the idea of queer theory and the way we think about it. Wonderful. Excellent. Oh, this has been so fascinating. This is uh, just great. Um, that's a great project. I love it. Um, I'm very excited about sharing it with my students and my friends. Uh, so tell me what you're working on. Like we're about to sign off, but, uh, tell me what you're working on next. Well, so right now I'm at the very early stages of a book on feminism and, um, particularly the question of feminist, um, in a sense, it's related to to what I'm what I do in queer faith, in that I'm trying to think about the problem, uh, the the role that the concept of innocence plays in feminist thought, um, and rather than and I'm arguing that feminist theory, rather than um, attempt to claim women's innocence might do better in um, thinking about some of the resentments and hesitations and complexities of feminist thought um, as a way of as a way of departing from a long-standing idealization of female innocence and instead, allowing for um allowing for a more complex view of the kinds of mm -hmm. feelings and desires that yeah great so a project to. kind of queering feminism yeah yeah exactly and and queering not only i mean there's there's been a you know vast mm -hmm. body of work done on lesbian feminism queering feminism not in that sense but in the sense of questioning the kinds of affects that we've experienced mm -hmm. oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Uh, this, this has been wonderful. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I hope you enjoyed talking to us. So. I did. Thank you for, for excellent. Thanks to, much. Uh, Take care. Bye. Oh. All right. Goodbye. <laughs>